Welcome, everybody. We're so glad that you're here with us. We are concluding um, our series to the book of Haggai called Renew the Vision. Um, as we've been discussing in the past two weeks, um, that Haggai is a minor prophet, and it's one of the smallest books, only 38 verses. Um, but even though it's a minor prophet, it has a major impact in our lives. And even though it's small, uh, it can really change our, way, our lives in a big, big way. And so I want to be able to dive right in. Uh, to the passage, and so I'm going to ask that you would join me in a word of prayer as we go before the Lord together and open up his word. Father, we thank you that um, you are here in this place. I thank you for each and every person who is here, Lord. I pray, God, that um, they would know they're not here by accident, and I pray for all that are listening online, Lord, that they would know that they're not listening to this message by accident. God, I pray that regardless of where we are um, in regards to knowing you or not knowing you, whatever it may be, Lord, I pray that um, if nothing else, that we would get a deep sense of how much you love us, that every person who hears my voice uh, would know that you love them so much uh, that you sent your son Jesus to live a perfect life and die a horrible death, but to be raised to new life, to make a way where there was no way so that we may have eternal life with you, God. Father, I pray that as we dive in sure that I would decrease, you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, and impactful way to each and every one of us. May you be glorified and may we receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to be in Haggai chapter 2, um, and so uh, we've been showing a video the past couple weeks to kind of give a background of where we are, but we're not going to do that today, uh, but suffice it to say, as we are concluding the book of Haggai, as we've just done three weeks through it, um, we are at a place where we've talked about um, our kingdom priorities and that commitment to have his priorities be the most important ones. And then we've talked about the fact that we covenant with him, we have a relationship with him, which gives us kingdom peace. And so the main points from those two sermons are on the back side of your notes today. Um, and today we're going to talk about consecrated and our kingdom purpose. And this idea of consecrated is just this idea of having something be, it's something set aside for, a, for an important purpose. It, it implies holiness, it implies sanctification, it implies purity. But in order to give kind of a much less holy version of that. Um, I'm wondering if, if any of you have something set aside or, or set apart, because that's what consecrated means, right? Something set apart for a purpose. And let me give an example. Um, uh, when I go into my closet, um, I have my side over here, and there's certain clothes that are set apart for a certain purpose, right? It's like, so for example, I don't wear my, my suit every single day. Like that is for, that's set apart, set aside for when I need to go to a formal occasion. Uh, I have my, my long sleeve button ups, I have my short sleeve button ups, and, and you know, I choose which one of those are based on the weather, and um, you know, also I do that because uh, I always feel like I need to wear a collar when I'm, when I'm working, because if I were to go up, you know, maybe someone, I need to go on a hospital visit or things like that, and, and I just show up like in a t-shirt, I feel like the hospital, like people are like, oh, that's nice, you're not welcome here, no. Um, but just, you know, I need to look professional, because I'm young and, you know, that's fine. So I feel like I knew that. But then I have this section, and I'm wondering if any of you have this section too. If you do, let me know so I'm not alone in this. Uh, there's a section when I walk in and I look to the lower left, and um, Steph, my wife Steph has recently told me, you know, I need more t-shirts. I'm like, yeah, that's true. But here's the thing. I have like five or six t-shirts right here, right in a row, all ready to go, set aside for when I lose enough weight to wear them. Does anybody have these like, there's like these gold clothes that you're like, no, I'm gonna wear this shirt and it's gonna be a great shirt when that time comes. But this idea of like, they're set apart. I'm like, okay, when that time comes, I'm gonna be able to wear that and it's gonna be great. But this whole idea of, you know, Obviously, those are small examples. Another small example might be uh, married couples. Uh, one of the things that we register for is like a nice um, like set of china, right? And then we use it like maybe thrice in our whole marriage. Um, and so there's things like that where it's like, you know, we have it set apart for a purpose. Um, but some of those times that things are set apart, the purpose is, is just so big or it's, you know, it's so specific that we never use it. Now, I'm going to transition here because when I talk about being consecrated for kingdom's purpose, for God's kingdom purpose, what I'm talking about here is that we are all, when we give our lives to Jesus and we trust him and we live for him, we are now no longer like the way that we were before and we're no longer like the rest of the world, that we have an opportunity to recognize we are set apart for a purpose. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that if we give our lives to Jesus and we follow him and we have a kingdom purpose and we're set apart, consecrated for it, that doesn't mean that we only fulfill that purpose as frequently as I use our china at home, right? It's not like it's something where, oh, hey, you've come to know the Lord. He's got a great plan for your life. Three times in your life, it's going to be really important you step up. 
No, no, no. Instead, it's this idea of recognizing that we have these purposes to which God has called each and every one of us. And part of that purpose is the gifts and the talents and the abilities he's given us to serve him in a certain way. Part of that is to recognize that the overarching idea of, of God's kingdom purpose is so that people who don't know him would come to know who he is. And that means being a light for people. It means inviting people. It means coming alongside. It means living our lives in such a way that it's so clear that God has done a thing in our lives that we are an example through our actions and through our words and through the way that we interact with others. And so this idea of being consecrated, being set aside for a kingdom purpose, we want to just focus on this idea that, again, consecration is means sets apart. It means this idea of being holy. It means separating ourselves from something that is unclean or there are different um, instruments in the Bible that were consecrated for a certain purpose. And so it's saying, okay, this is for the purpose of God, that this is living for his kingdom, or this is being used for his kingdom. That's what it means for us to be consecrated, to be holy, to be sanctified, to be pure, and to recognize that each day we are to live out this holiness, this royal priesthood, that for those of us who know Jesus, that we are living for his glory and we are his people. And I know some, not everyone in this room is, is likely going to be a Christian or to know what that looks like. And so what I'm, what I'm asking at this point is just for us to look through what it means to have our lives set apart, consecrated for God's purposes. Because there are three things that all of us face and, or experience. And if we have a God perspective, a God kingdom perspective, we're going to interact, we're going to face those differently than if we have a worldly perspective or the perspective of just kind of the way we have grew up naturally. So our main point for this morning is this idea that when we are consecrated for God's purposes, he gives us new perspectives on our works, our work, excuse me, our woes and our worth, our work, our woes and our worth. And before you ask the question, yes, I chose the word woes because it started with a W. Let's just get it out of the way now because it's alliteration. Um, so we have our work, our woes, and our worth. And we are going to be in the word of God, uh, Haggai chapter 2, verse 10 through 23. Um, and it's going to start on page 1475 in the church Bible. Uh, if you brought your own Bible or you are using the Bible app, that's great. Uh, but we have just 13 verses to go through this morning. And as we begin, we mentioned in the very beginning of the series that there are four messages that God has for his people. Um, and so we're actually going to tackle the last two today because both happen on the same day recorded in history. So God just spoke through Haggai twice on the specific day. So we're going to dive into both of them this morning. And so the first one has to do with our work. So in your notes and on the screen, it talks about this idea that we are consecrated for good works we are not consecrated by our good works. That preposition is super important for us to take hold of. Let's read verses uh, 10 through 13 together. Haggai 2 verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Again, we talked about um, dates last week. What's important, one of the things important about this date is just to let us know that it's been two months since the message that came from Haggai 2 chapter 2 verse 1. And also to show us that it's now been three months since they started building the temple again. So Haggai is a book when the people come back from the Persian Empire, they start building the temple. But before they do, which is the reason they came, was to have the kingdom priority to build his temple. But instead, they start making their fancy lives the way that they want them. And he says, you know, you need to show your allegiance, your commitment to me. And so then we start to see that they start to build and then they experience great peace um, in the midst of trials. But with that said, we continue on. Verse 11. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priest what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Let's stop for a minute. What is this telling us? It's looking back on Leviticus. Leviticus is a chapter. It's the third book uh, of the Bible. And in the book of Leviticus, it talks a lot about purity regulations, ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness. And because God's people, the Israelites, were meant to stand out so clearly amongst the other nations, there were different regulations and purity um, situations in which God called them to live, to be clean in what they touch and how they live and what that looks like. And so Leviticus has a lot of these regulations in there. But what it's talking about is this idea 
that if there was consecrated meat, meat that was brought forth to the priest as an offering at the tabernacle, then it was offered up there and then the priest would be able to carry it or they'd be able to eat it. Not all of it, but some of it was, was allowed for the people to eat. So what the, the parable or the story, the question that God is wanting to really, um, really pull from the priest is this idea of if you had a consecrated, set-apart meat and you put it in the fold of your garment— and you put it down at your table and you ate it, and then your, your garment, your, your robe, touched other food, does that food now become holy too? It, does, the, does the idea of ceremonial cleanliness and righteousness get transmitted through clothing? He says, no, that's not how it works. So then it continues. Verse 13, then Haggai said, if a person is defiled by contact with a dead body and they touch one of these things, again, food or bread or stew or wine, does that or does that, do those things, do they become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. So again, what are we talking about here? We're talking about now, if someone were to touch a dead body, they would be ceremonial, ceremonially unclean and they wouldn't be able to touch food or else that would then be contaminated or defiled. So it's pretty straightforward. But the point that he's getting at here is that when it comes to holiness and righteousness and purity, something that is consecrated and then touching something else, it cannot be transmitted the same way as something that has been defiled or something that has been touching a dead body. And we, and we know this instinctively in some ways because, you know, if we touch raw chicken or if we touch thing, we know that we, we need to wash our hands with soap and water and sing, you know, sing the ABC so it's long enough. I don't know, maybe that's what I learned. Um, but that way it's long enough so it's not, no longer contaminated. And then that way we're not touching, you know, raw food and then like touching all of our counter space and our kids, you know, like all these different things. And that way they're not to get sick. But we wash our hands because we recognize that disease or sickness, that is transmitted so much more easily and so much more clearly. And so, you know, we get an example of this. When I get it, when Steph and I get an email from um, Shaylin's old school that's, hey, um, one of the first graders um, has strep throat, um, and so they're staying home. We just want to let you know. Because, you know, your child may have been um, exposed to that. And, and then we're aware, okay, there's a chance she could get sick. What we don't get emails of are saying, hey, if you're sick, if you have a kid who has strep throat, we want to make sure you bring them into school because there's a lot of healthy kids and we're hoping their health will, you know, will really help your child out. Right? It's not transmitted both ways. It's not transmitted both ways. So here's, here's what we're getting at here is when he starts talking about Verse 14, he hits on here. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. See, they're thinking in their mind, we are building God's consecrated building. We are building his temple. We are doing something holy. We are doing a good work. And so because we've been consecrated to do a good work, that must mean that everything we do is now holy. That we are now transmit we are because the temple is holy we must now be holy because we must now be holy we don't have to worry about being clean anymore because we're doing it through our good works but what he's saying is no 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 that's not how it works instead it's this idea that because we have been defiled the people now are still they're doing a good thing but they're missing the point of what makes it good or holy in the first place Warren Wearsby says it this way not only was it important that they do God's work but it was also important that they do his work from hearts that were pure and devoted to God. It's not just about the doing of the activity. It's the fact that if we, we could do good things with a bad heart. We can do good things with malevolent or malicious motives. That's possible. So, if we were to offer to God something that we say, God, I, you know, I serve in this way and I, and I, and I come to you and I sit at your at a church and my, I go to a small group, I read my Bible, but if the motive is so that I can look better than the person next to me, if the motive is so that I can be seen as good to those around me, if the motivation is so, so that I can feel like my good deeds are what makes me right before God, then they're the wrong motives and we're missing the point. Because our good works aren't the foundation of our faith. Jesus is the foundation of our faith. 
Our good works are the fruit that come out of our foundation in Jesus. So we are not consecrated. We are not set apart for godly purposes by the good works that we do. Perhaps the people thought, again, maybe because I'm doing good things, I'll be good. Perhaps we think that our church attendance, our giving record, our small group involvement, our volunteerism, and our willingness to pray in front of people when we have meals out is enough for us to be good in God's sight. But we are not made righteous by our own good works. In fact, our own righteousness, as Isaiah talks about, is as filthy rags. It's the idea of if we think that us making ourselves clean by our own good works is going to work, it'd be like the idea of getting a filthy rag, giving yourselves a, a wash down every morning and thinking, now I'm cleaner. And yet we still turn to that and say, no, look, I'm clean, I'm clean. But it's if our, what we are using to try to do that is our own righteousness, our own good works, then we're going to miss out on what true righteousness means that's been imputed or given to us through the cross of Christ and his sacrifice. That we are consecrated not by our good works, but for good works. That Paul talks about how we've been set apart for good works. That he has prepared for us, that God has prepared for us in advance to do. That all of us have been given good gifts, not for our own good, but 1 Corinthians talks about for the common good. And so we recognize that we are not set apart because we are good. We are set apart because God is good and he loves us so much that he wants our identity to be known, not through our work. So we don't come and we don't say, I'm known as the person who leads this class. And that's my foundation. Because then what happens if the class falls apart? Well, then we lose our foundation. I'm the one who serves only in this area, or I only know how to do this, or I only know how to find my identity and my validation in my Christian faith based on the activity that I do. Because if that happens, then there may be a time in which God encourages or challenges or takes us to a point where we don't do that activity for a while. So we learn that our, our identity isn't in the doing for God, but in the being with God. That it's not about our works, but it's about our relationship. And that could be a struggle for me, for all of us. But recognizing that we are able to see we are consecrated, we are set apart to do his work. But it is not the work that allows us or causes us to be saved. That Jesus alone, 1 Corinthians 3.11, is the only foundation upon which we can build our lives. John MacArthur's study Bible in this section talks about how even though the people had been bringing their offerings while neglecting the rebuilding of the temple, their offerings had not been acceptable. Their sin had caused their sacrifice to be contaminated and ineffectual. And their good, week, oh, sorry, good works, their offerings, could not transmit cleanness. In other words, as we mentioned, sin is contagious, righteousness is not. So our good deeds as Christians don't make us right before Jesus. Our good deeds, for those of us who don't know Jesus, don't make us right before God either. That we need to recognize that our good deeds are a response of how Jesus made us righteous through his good work on the cross. And that this good work isn't the cause, it's the effect. Our good works are the cause, are not the cause, they're the effect of what God has done. Because true life change does not happen on the outside in what we do and our works. It happens on the inside and from the inside out until we become who God has molded us and shaped us and made us to be. Secondary part, not just about our works, but how does a new perspective come when in regards to our woes, to our difficulties? And it talks about this, how even in our trials... God is calling us to return to him and trust him. Even in our trials, God is calling us to turn to him, return to him, excuse me, and to trust him. Verse 15, he says, now give careful thought to this, or to this from this day on. In other words, as you are here right now, I want you to think about something. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. He's saying, remember three months ago, before you started rebuilding the temple like I had asked you to, think about what was going on. He said, verse 16, when anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. Does anybody feel like this? Times in which we, we try to work and we think that we're going to get you know, a certain bonus or a certain commission or a certain thing. And all of a sudden we go to it and we're like, okay, we're going we're gonna to have the provision. And it's not nearly what we had expected. 
And notice it's not that God doesn't provide anything, but it's less because there's a reason. He wants us to, to be aware of something specifically to his people who are his covenant people. What is it that he wants us to do? Verse 17, he says, I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail. Why was it those three things? Those are three of the things that are listed in Deuteronomy 28 when it talks about the covenant curses. What happens when God's covenant people don't obey, don't love him, don't follow him, there are certain curses that come, and part of those are in regards to crops, and part of those specifically use the verbiage of mildew, blight, um, and hail. So then, let's the last few parts here. So, I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. He, there are times in which we experience difficulties and trials and woes. Maybe because, maybe because our, our priorities have been shifted. Maybe we found our hope in the crops, not in the one who's the giver of rain. Maybe we found our hope in, in having possessions rather than checking to see if God is truly possessing all of us and, and is inside of us and owning us and shaping us and molding us. P perhaps it's one of these things in which there are times in which God will allow things to happen and difficulties for us to face. And on our own perspective, before we know God, those are the kind of things that they would cause us to run away from God, not to return to him, but to run from him. And then would cause us not to trust him, but to create mistrust. Now, here's a, here's a question. Does that mean that every trial we face is something that God is saying that he's creating just for the sake of returning? If I were to say that, then that means I'd be going along similar to what the friends of Job would say, saying that, well, you must be doing something wrong. You must be breaking a covenant blessing because otherwise God would be, would be blessing you. So I'm not, I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is that God can use any trial or tribulation or woe in our lives as a moment to whisper us back to relationship with him. That in Jeremiah 2, there's a, a, a couple of verses in the beginning that talk about how God is speaking to Jerusalem or speaking to the people. And he says, you know, this idea of, I remember when we were in the wilderness together, and it was as if the time when the bride would be with his, the bridegroom. What, what does this mean? It means that there are times in our wilderness moments, our trials, our pains, our heartaches, and our moments of darkness that the intimacy we have with God, if we respond to the returning call to him, that that intimacy and that closeness is as a newly married couple and their closeness to one another. That trial, as C.S. Lewis talks about, and difficulties and pain, that God can speak to us as if through a megaphone during our pain. And so these trials that we face, these woes. In a worldly perspective, we run from God. In a godly perspective, we don't understand how it's all going to work. We don't know all the answers, but we return to him because his desire is maybe if bad things are around you, maybe you'll recognize that I am always with you. And if you can recognize that, what's the message we've talked about the first two weeks? The message of God's kingdom he wants us to know is the four words i am with you and if we if we place our foundation of our lives on those four words then even when trials come we're able to withstand it even when the rains come and the floods rise and the wind batters us from side to side we can say that we are living our building our lives upon the rock of jesus christ and upon the words that he spoke and living our lives that way so we see here that when we build our lives the way that we want to on our own things, things will not go as they, we hope. Maybe for a while they will. Maybe it feels good for a while. But even how many stories have we heard? Even the people that get all the things that they've always wanted, they look back with regret. And they look back and say, man, I thought that finances, I thought that prestige, I thought that fame, I thought that all these things would be the thing to fulfill me. And now I have those things and the ache in my heart is all the greater. And the pain is all the more because now I realize that that which I made a false idol is no longer, is, is impossibly able to help me. So sometimes God can use these woes and he may cause things for us to turn to him. And so verse 17, again, why 
because he wants us to return to him. We see this very similar. Second Chronicles 7.14 is, is a verse that we use all the time for our nation and how we pray for our nation. And we use that, but we miss the context of verse 13 because verse 13 and verse 14 create the context again of if God's covenant people would respond to him, what he would do. So what is Second Chronicles 7.13 and 14? What do they say? God says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people. Again, and when I inflict crop or problems on the crops because you are my covenant people and you're breaking our covenant promise, so there's curses. If I do that, what does verse 14 say that we know all the time? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That He's just sharing this importance of recognizing that when things around us are not going the way we want, it might be call, God calling us to return to him so that we can experience what it is that we need. And so we might be able to look at different things in our lives. I could look at pain that I've struggled with, with depression growing up and being suicidal. I, could, I can look at these three different false to be very clear, false labels that I had believed about myself. And I, and I think I've shared, maybe I haven't, but this idea of one of them was the idea of being unwanted and this idea that I thought falsely, and again, they, this would never be true, but the idea I felt like, well, I was, I was born 12 years after my brother. You know, my parents probably didn't want to have, I was probably an accident, you know, this kind of idea. Now, the truth is, is that my parents had wanted to have kids for a while and weren't able, a second child, and they weren't able to, and so they were um, when I was born. So it's not true, but what was, it was a false label. It's like, oh, I don't, I'm not wanted. I'm, I, some people don't care. The second one, again, not true, but this idea of being rejected, this idea of feeling like, you know, I'm going to be rejected by my friends, and, and so I'm going to be rejected by girls, a lot, and just being able to feel like, you know, how, I'm not going to be able to be truly loved. It's okay. I won. I got Steph, and we're married, and it's great, so we're good. But that feeling of like, ah, oh, like, you know, being rejected, and, and, you know, just this whole, this whole concept of recognizing that because I was a fear, I had a fear of rejection, it meant that I was afraid that I was never going to receive love. Because I was afraid I was never going to receive love, it meant that I never actually let anyone know what was going on. And because I never let anyone know what was going on growing up, it led to being depressed and suicidal and feeling like there was no hope. That there are these false labels that you and I may have put upon ourselves that we, 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 we think we call ourselves that when we look in the mirror or in our moments of solitude, but they're not true. And then the last one is this idea of being a failed hero, that I'd felt all the pressure for me to feel like I had to be perfect to hold our family together. Because if I was perfect, I was the baby of the family. If everyone, you know, if everyone loved me, then you know, I, could, I could be that pillar that holds the family together. And then they get divorced. And it's not true that I'm holding the family together. And so these things, why would God allow me to experience depression? Or being suicidal. Well, I know he's used that to bless other people who have gone through similar places. And, and I can't say I know exactly what you're going through, but I can say at least I've been where you've been and there's hope. Why would he allow me to feel rejected or unwanted? Because there are a ton of people in this world who feel rejected and unwanted. And if I could say, but listen, God breathed life in you. You're not rejected. He created you and formed you. And he loves you so much. He sent his son to die for you. You're not unwanted. In fact, he knew who you were and he breathed life into you before you even knew a word or knew a moment of this world. He loved you so much that he did that. And in fact, failed hero. No, no, no. It's not all about you or me to be able to hold everything together. It's the fact that I have the honor in my position to be able to point people, point each of us to the one who holds all things and to the Lord Jesus Christ. So God can take these things that were horrible things that were not meant to happen or, or I didn't, it wasn't happening to me or, or whatever it is. He can take these trials and he can create triumphs when we return to him and trust him. Now, where's the second, where's the, uh, the dynamic of trusting him? Let's look, starting in verse 18. From this day on, Haggai says, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Now he's saying, I asked you to think about before the temple was built, 
how bad things were. You didn't have enough crops. Everything was going poorly. Now I want you to think about once we started the temple, what has it been like the past three months? And here's what he says. He says, give careful thought. Is there any, is there yet any seed in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. But from this day on, I will bless you. What does this mean? Well, we look at the date. The 24th day of the ninth month is in, is in the month of December. And this is the, the season in which the people would start planting the seed for the upcoming crop the following year. So when he says, is there any seed in the barn? What he's saying is, listen, remember how things were beforehand and you didn't get all the things that you needed? Or rather, you didn't get the, the full measure of your crop? Now that you've committed your life and your work towards my kingdom purpose, is there any seed left? No, you are already going to have to trust me. Let me show you the ways in which I will fulfill and honor that trust. From this day on, I'll bless you. From this day on, the pomegranate fruit, there will be fruit. The vine will have fruit if you continue to obey and become my covenant people once again. To return to me, but then to trust me, to recognize that he alone, the, the trust we have isn't in the crops. It's in the bringer of rain and the one who provides all of those things for us. And notice that his blessings come not because of the people's good works. It comes because they were going forth and that is because of his, um, or because his call for them to return to him. And in Haggai 1, when they said, now they'll start, they return their hearts to him. And that's where we start to see this come to fruition. We've talked about our works, the new perspective of our woes. And the last one is our new perspective on our worth. And, and this point here is that no matter how much we may have fought God in our past, he has fought for our future to fulfill his kingdom purpose. The girls, uh, last night we went on a, a drive up to friends in LA. We came down late and Elise and Shaylin fell asleep in the car. We got them into their beds. And it was in the middle of the night where Elise started waking up and, and was getting really frustrated because, you know, I think it was one of those she didn't really realize that she had been transferred into the bed, and now she doesn't know where she is. And it's one of those where she's like, you know, I want mom, and, and I want music, and, and I want all these different things. And she starts to fight. I'm like, honey, you just got to go back to sleep. And she's like, no, I'm upset. You know, and she starts going like that. And you know, she's expressing, like, being frustrated. She's like, you know, how am I going to be able to afford college? I'm like, I don't know either. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what happened. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just these ideas of, like, there's all this frustration and, and all this, you know, and what ends up happening is that all of a sudden, you know, She's like fighting, she's upset, and what ends up happening is I lay down next to her, I hold her hand, and she falls asleep in her father's arms. Now, what happens to us when we have these trials? Like, like for Shaylin, she would fight up against me. She would have her swaddle when she was growing up, um, when she was a baby. She would have her swaddle. I think I should. She would like get one arm out, and I knew it was over, because then she would get the other arm out, and she's just like waking herself up and doing like power fists. I don't know. And all of a sudden, you try to calm her down, and you try to sway her, and she's like wiggling, and she's fighting, and she's arching her back. And what eventually happens? That she falls asleep, resting in her father's arms. So, no matter how much we have fought God in our past, God, I want to live my way. You're trying to restrict me by living according to your word, even though it's the right way to do it. I don't want the right. I want my own freedom, my own right. So I'm going to fight my way out of this. I'm going to power fist my way through life until all of a sudden things don't work out the way that I want. I'm going to fight up against you. I'm not going to allow you to come for me. But what's going to happen in our lives if we trust in God's and his kingdom purposes? In the end, as much as we fought God, we will fall asleep in our Father's arms. And we will know his love for us, that he loved us enough to fight for us when we were still trying to fight against him. That while we were still sinners, he died for us. That maybe for a good person, maybe some person would die, but Romans 5, 7 talks about that and then says, but God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And it shows us that no matter how much we fought against him, that he fights for our future. We see this. Now, Now, the second message is this idea. This is specifically to Zerubbabel. If you remember Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel was the governor that came from the Messianic line of David. Uh, it was the, a lot of these the first couple messages were to Zerubbabel and to Joshua as the high priest. This last message is only to Zerubbabel. And in this message, God is speaking to him. Again, during this season, and this is what he says. Verse 20 says, The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. 
Verse 21, then I said, tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. Now, he's saying, listen, remember what happened in the Exodus and the, and the, the splitting of the Red Sea when the chariots and the riders were overthrown? I'm the same God who can do that. Remember when Joshua was going in and the people were fighting the other nations and the nations would start fighting amongst themselves so that the Israelites would have victory? He says, listen, I can do that again. And so we, we see this specific idea that verses 21 through 22 show us how much the Lord was willing to fight for Zerubbabel to make sure that the kingdom line of David would still be able to come to fruition. He says, listen, there are other nations who are bigger than you, stronger than you, faster than you, better than you, and yet you are mine. So they have no power. The Red Sea is bigger than you and more mighty than you, but you are mine, and I can make a way where there was no way. And we can walk, split the sea and walk right through it. So we start to see, remember, verse, uh, in verse 23, he refers to himself again as the Lord Almighty. What have we talked about through the series? That the Lord Almighty is a specific term that isn't just a powerful God. It's the commander of the angel armies. He's a, a warrior. He's a, he battles for us. He fights for us. And he recognizes that we cannot fight on our own. And so he fights for us. And the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name in Exodus 15. And it points us to this idea that he fights for his people. He fought for them in Jerusalem. Here's what it said, and Warren Wearsby says this. Were the nations around Jerusalem larger and stronger? Rest assured that the Lord will care for his people Israel, as he has always done in the past. The same God who enabled Moses to defeat Egypt and Joshua to conquer the nations in Canaan would protect his people so that his purposes could be fulfilled through them. No matter how much we fought up against him in the past, if we return to him, trust him, and find our hope not in our own good works but in his, then we can rest in our Father's arms no matter what we're facing. We start to see this. The last verse, and I'll close after this. Verse 23. On that day, again, declares the Lord Almighty. He says, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. My servant was a term that he did not use lightly, and so it gave great honor to Zerubbabel. I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Literally, this passage, this book ends with a reminder that God is the Lord Almighty, the one who fights our battles. And when he's talking about here with the signet ring, there's a lot of history to it, but basically when God had said to David that there will be a Messiah that comes from your line, that that was the promise. And there were good kings and bad kings throughout that process. But then we see in Jeremiah 22, the Jehoiakim, who is an evil king, and God actually tells him, I am removing my signet ring from you, and I am taking you away um, from being my promise. That, that, a signet ring denoted honor, power, the authority to speak on someone's behalf. The word signet is where we get the word signature. And so this idea of one who speaks on our behalf. And you see this often when there's a ring that like is dipped into wax. Maybe you've seen it on the end of a scepter in movies. Maybe you've seen like a little stamp. But that's what it is. It's basically saying that because you have my signet ring, you can speak for me and I am with you. And you have the same honor bestowed upon yourself that would be someone among this line. And so what he's saying with Jehoiakim, he removed that. And in fact, in Jeremiah 36, God went so far as to say that now nobody from your line, Jehoiakim, you are so evil and so far off of my covenant promise. No one from your line will become king. The Messiah will no longer come from the line of David. And this is devastating because it's right after this happens that Jehoiakim, he was the king that right after that happened, that the Babylonians came in and removed him from king, or from being a king, removed the power of the people. They were exiled for years. So we see here that by God bringing back the signet ring, we would hope that a book would be able to have, when we watch movies or read books or watch stories, season finales, we want there to be an exclamation point at the end of it. And in our culture, we say, God says, I will make you like a signet ring for I have chosen you. 
That's not an exclamation point in our, con- in our context. But what he's saying is that I, have, I will fight for you and my future for the kingdom purpose is going to be fulfilled through you, Zerubbabel, because because of you, I'm going to now bring back the signet ring. I'm now going to make the line of David, your line, continue on as to have the Messiah eventually. And if you look at the Matthew genealogy of Jesus and the Luke genealogy of Jesus, both of them have Zerubbabel there as a way of reminding us that coming out of the exile, that God fought for us, that he is with us, and that he keeps his promises to fulfill his purposes in us. And so we see here as we close this idea that even we fought up against him, no matter how many years we fought, you're in this room this morning and you're still maybe fighting in some areas. He loves you enough that while you were fighting against him, he fought for you. And if our eyes could just be open to that, if, if we could have that moment of realization that, our eyes would be able to see the love that he has for us, the way that he's fought for us, and the purpose he has to live through us. It would change our perspectives on everything. Now, I'm, I'm not one that uh, when there's something, you know, a celebrity does something that I want to always prop a celebrity up, right? Because like celebrities are people, we are people, right? And I know that, you know, anytime we prop up anybody who... who uh, loves Jesus, there's a, there's a propensity that we could still fall short and make mistakes. And a, a, a celebrity is someone that's in a big, um, a lot of people can see that, so the fall is greater, but also the impact is more, um, can be larger as well. And, and I bring that up because uh, there's a celebrity recently that, that really, that released a gospel album who was not someone who would release a gospel album. And his name's Kanye West. And he's someone that, he's, he was sharing, how many of you ever seen, um, the Late Late Show, I think it is, uh, with James Corden, and they do the um, carpool karaoke. Carpool karaoke, you guys are aware of this? He basically has, like, famous musicians come in, and they listen to their own music, and, like, they sing together, and, like, they do, like, little interviews. Like, it's, it's really fun. It's, it's pretty good. And he's got a pretty decent voice. Um, this was not a carpool karaoke. This was an air pool karaoke, and what that means is that they had an entire plane, and it was James, Kanye West, and then the rest of the entire plane was this gospel choir. And so you see clips, and they're singing some of the songs from, from, uh, from his new album, and they're, you know, they're praising God. But here's the thing. It's, a, it's like a 19-minute video or something, and there's a lot, a lot of footage. And in it, Kanye's just sharing what God has done in his life. And he talks about how, what it means to have your eyes open. And, and he's saying, you know, James is saying, what are you going to do, or what, what would you say to someone who sees you and knows how you used to live your life. I mean, he's married to Kim Kardashian. I mean, it's, he's got a lot of uh, clout um, in the celebrity culture. But notice real quick, sorry, side tangent. We could be really excited for people to come to know the Lord, right? Like that is a huge reason to praise. That angels rejoice. But we don't celebrate more so when a celebrity does than our neighbor does, right? Because a soul is not more important or less important than someone else. And in fact, if we say, oh, well, this celebrity became a Christian, that become, feels like it's like plus one point on our end. And then if a celebrity doesn't become a Christian or, or steps away, it's like, oh, minus one. Like, oh, my gosh. Here's the thing. God does not celebrities to proclaim, need celebrities to be the ones to proclaim his kingdom. Our faith is not validated because someone who's famous now believes it. Our faith is validated because God is famous regardless and we get to praise and honor him. And we rejoice with others who are rejoicing, but we don't hinge our faith or hook our trailer to a celebrity of any kind or a pastor or anyone that we elevate. Because truly the only ones that should be elevated is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so, sidebar, I'd say I'd stop preaching, but I'm not done. So here's the thing. Um, but this idea that he's sharing, and, and they ask Kanye West, what are you going to do when people you know, they don't believe you. They don't believe that this is a real thing. You know, he had just talked about how, you know, he reads his Bible at night while Kim Kardashian watches Dateline after the kids go to bed. He's talking about, you know, he shares this story about how, he's like, I think, you know, several years ago, he was going through a really hard time and it was in the news. And he's like, you know, I think that God allowed me to experience a lot of pain. And he allowed a lot of people to see that. So that when I tell them now, that Jesus saved me, they'd be able to have a better understanding of what God has done. 
that we don't rely on celebrities to be the ones that share the message, but celebrities do have an opportunity to share a message in a way that I can't rent out an airplane and have people singing gospel. I can't do it. He could. But guess what? Kanye can't go into your families and your workplaces and your neighborhoods and share in the same way you can. He can't do that, but you could. And so he talks about this example when he says, again, what are you going to do when people question you? He says, I'll put it this way. This is a paraphrase. He says it differently, but the paraphrase is there's two different states of being, right? There's, there's sleeping and there's being awake. And he talks about how when you're sleeping, you know, you're, you're asleep, but when you're awake, now you know you're not sleeping anymore. And he says, this is my awakening. His eyes have been opened. And because his eyes have been opened, it gives us him new perspective. And when our eyes are opened, it gives us new perspective. What's that perspective? That when it comes to works, what's the, what do we need to know? Yeah, it's not just that we're not consecrated by our works, but it's the fact that we said that health cannot impute itself upon sickness and pass along health to others who are sick, except for the righteousness that Jesus imputed upon us by the work of the cross. That that's the only time in which health could be bestowed upon and make those who are experience it, make them healthy. Otherwise, it's the other way around. The cross of Christ is that work. Now, when it comes to our woes, that Jesus, in his greatest time of woe, the Garden of Gethsemane, before the night before he died, he, in this moment, could have said, God, I don't like this plan. I'm going to call the angels down concerning me, and I'm going to change everything. But instead, he turned to God, and he trusted God. That the seed was already in the barn. The plan was already in place. And Jesus has to just say, God, I trust you. Not my will, but your will be done. And because he was faithful, we now can call upon him as Lord and Savior. We may have eternal life. So in our greatest woes, we can turn to him and we can trust in him. And when it comes to our worth, Jesus fought for you and your life and your eternal soul before you even took a breath on this earth. And he fought for you. And he had all the weight of all the burden of all the sin throughout all of time on his shoulders. And so when he was on the cross and he says, it is finished, it doesn't just mean, hey, you know what? You're going to make it through this day. Oh, you know what? The sin in the past is gone. It's all sin for all people, past, present, future, all the things that I have done, I am doing, will potentially do. Same thing for you. He says, it is finished because now when we give our lives to Jesus and we fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, now that work of righteousness has been imputed and been given to us. Now our woes, we say that we could trust in God because Jesus did and now we trust in Jesus and we can say that our worth has now not been in anything that we could do on our own, anything that we could own or anything that we can get from other people, but only only through the cross of Christ we fix our eyes on him and we renew that vision to have our eyes open then the kingdom of God is still being used to change people's lives and God uses imperfect broken people like he did back then because he's still using you and me today God is not done will we respond to have the kingdom vision renewed in our lives that we will be a light in a dark place a city on a hill that cannot be hidden pointing people to the cross of Christ and recognize that because our eyes are open, may we spend every day God gives us when we open our eyes in the morning, may we have the perception and the perspective to help other people far from God be brought near to him so their eyes might be open, so that they may have the kingdom perspective, so that they can impact people in a way that only they can. Because all of us came to know the Lord someday. There was a day we didn't and there's a day that there, we did we can have the honor of helping other people on that journey as well. And when we have our lives set apart for that purpose, it gives new vision and a new perspective on our works, our woes, and our worth. He needs to change us from the inside out. May that start in us today. Father, we thank you for who you are, and we pray, God, that uh, you would call us unto yourself, that our... We recognize that your love is everlasting, God, that we know we're going to stumble. We know we're going to fall. We know we have failed. We will fail again. We are not perfect, but we are made righteous because of you, the perfect one, Jesus. And I pray that as we recognize that we want your will above all else, we want 
our purpose to remain, that the cry of our hearts would be to be giving you praise and that we would recognize that that has to happen from the inside out, not from our works on the, on the outside in, but you would do a work in us so that our works would point others to the work of the cross of Christ. We love you, Lord, and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. someone to be able to change the world by changing one person. We probably do that, right? We think, oh my gosh, if I could have that kind of impact on the whole world by changing one person, yeah, of course I would do that. And what if I were to tell you that that one person is you? That you have the ability through God working in your life, that the purpose he has consecrated set you apart for, to reach the people only you can reach, to have the impact only you can have, to be able to bless the people only the way you can bless them, and to serve the world only way he's created you to serve. If you were to be able to have God and ask God to work on you from the inside out and to bring out all that stuff that is not of him, lay it at the altar so that as you decrease, he will increase and the power of the gospel through your life will be so apparent that people just like in the nations in the times of the Israelites people would see your good deeds they would see your life and they'd want to know the God that you serve the God that changed you and the one who had that impact on you so as we close this series called Renew the Vision remember the vision God has for the kingdom and your role in it and next week we're starting a new series called Own the Vision in which we talk a little bit more practically about different ways that we can go about that if you need prayer I'll be up here and would love to pray with you um, otherwise there's uh, information for you on the patio to sign up for this week uh, for this month rather and um, we're praying for you you are prayed for cared for and loved we cannot wait to worship with you starting a new series next Sunday morning God bless and have a wonderful week